но лучше не называть в каком департаменте. This is the sound of my favorite short story. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is Resound. Writing is just his want, a thing he does. So at the same time as he's having this feeling of envy, he's also thinking about how maybe there could be a story in there somewhere. A pathetic story of a little man who's abused by everybody, has this moment of glory which is snatched from him, and he's avenged only posthumously. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, podcasts, playlists, and little audio scrawls we find all over the world. We listen to everything we can get our ears on, then play you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. Now on BBC Radio 4, our book at bedtime. The collection is Mike's comfort, the thing that makes him feel safe. Or it was, until last fall, when Mike's very own Lex Luthor showed up in Granite City. About 10 years ago, I was all of a sudden and out of nowhere reminded of a book that was read to me by Mrs. McCall, my grade school librarian. Since I remembered neither the title nor the author, I called my grammar school library to see if they could help me just by hearing a description of the plot. Grandpa-type figure comes to babysit a family of three children, and every time he lights his pipe, something magical happens. Like their reflections in the mirror start talking to them and step out to play. Or the bathtub they're in breaks away from the wall and starts floating out of the house and over town. Why, yes, the librarian said, that is Mr. Pudgeons. Mr. Pudgeons, of course. Oh, how I loved that book. This week on ReSound, audio stories inspired by the written word, be it a novel or a comic book. Nikolai Gogol, David Foster Wallace, and of course, lest we not forget... Look, up in the sky, it's a bird! It's a plane! It's Superman. Stay with us. Tim Key is a British poet, comedian, and self-described crumpled polymath who's obsessed with Nikolai Gogol's short story, The Overcoat. If you haven't read it, it's the tale of a poor and lowly government clerk, Akaki Akakievich, whose coat is so threadbare, it's the butt of his colleagues' jokes. Akaki saves everything for a new overcoat, which is eventually stolen from him. The story itself is either a simple tale or an allegory that explains all of humanity depending on who you ask. Tim Key explored the story in his own homage to its author in this plainly titled essay, Tim Key and Gogol's Overcoat. Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol, Chanel. This is the sound of my favorite short story. Every individual attached to them now. And now, the whole of society here it is in English. Quite recently, a complaint I love was received it. from a justice of the peace, in which he plainly Back into Russian now. Can we put some music on? This is how I spend my time in my flat, just absorbing Gogol's words. Tim, we put some music on? My wife hates it. October the 3rd. My name is Tim Key, and I am a documentarist, documentarian. I made a documentary last year, anyhow. I can't remember what the word is for someone who's done that. An important person in the Radio 4 buildings decided I could make another one, and I asked if I could do it about the overcoat. Not my overcoat. No. This is about Nikolai Gogol's The Overcoat, a short story I read 15 years ago that had an enormous bearing on the heavyweight Russian scribblers who followed him. Fyodor Dostoevsky said, We all come from Gogol's overcoat. Well, it's definitely stuck with me. The story was published exactly 170 years ago in 1842, and since then, critics and readers have been debating what the message of the story was, uh, or if there was any message. 
And this authoritative Russian voice belongs to Maria Rubins. She'll be guiding us through the story this afternoon. So it's not just me drooling over Gogol's prose. It may be about what it means to be human, what it means to be alive, what it means to realize or not to realize your human potential. There is sufficient evidence to support almost any interpretation. That's why this text remains such an enigma and at the same time so easy to read, so entertaining and ultimately so funny. The plan is to find out more about Gogol's The Overcoat, to go on an odyssey. I'm off on an odyssey, love. Are you wearing that? What? Yes. What? I always wear this. I know. In the department of... But it's best not to mention the department. There's no one more irritable than people in government departments, regiments, courts of justice and... Immediately the narrator digresses and begins to tell us all kinds of details, most of them completely irrelevant. But in fact, this is Gogol's typical style. His narrators style themselves as just another character in the story. So... In a certain department, there was a certain civil servant. His name was Akaki Akakievich. His name is absurd. He's called Akaki. You meet very few Russians called Akaki. I thought I'd go and see a professor. This is one of these obscure saint's names, and it sounds a little like shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, it means no shit, Akaki. This is Donald Rayfield, Russian scholar, goggle translator, and with a beard so white and soft you want to shear it from him and make it into mittens. It rolls a little like Dickens. His surnames always tell you about the character. He's, He's called Bashmachkin. Shoe. So shit, shit of its shoe. Yes, soft shoe. It's not a great start to life, no, no, is he, it? And he's doomed. Akaki Akakevich was born, if my memory fails me not, in the evening of the 23rd of March. His late mother, the wife of a government official... And October the 9th. I studied Russian at Sheffield University and can still speak it with waitresses. But apart from the language and a party I went to where everyone swapped clothes, reading The Overcoat was the highlight of my time in Sheffield. I wonder why that is. We have mentioned all of this in order that the reader might judge for himself that the whole sequence of events was entirely predetermined. He doesn't have all the knowledge, he doesn't have the control over the story. He just tells us a story the way he remembers it, and of course he doesn't remember all the details. I still wear the same overcoat. That's all that remains. Maybe I should have just joined more societies. I'd never had snake bite and black before, is the truth of it, and so I took a bit of a He hit. experiences lapses of memory, he digresses, he doesn't complete his sentences. In fact, demonstrates total incompetence as a storyteller. This is just amazing, this coat. What is this made of? What's this sleeve? Well, all I can tell you is it's a sheepskin coat made to measure. I don't, I don't actually deal with the material. That's done by the guy that makes the coat. And is this your current tailor? Well, people come and go in this business. Uh, I had three or four made by a man in Hornchurch who disappeared off the face of the earth. Uh, I had one made by a guy in Cannes in France who used to be a furrier when he lived over here. Um, he used to be a... Fur is that what you call them? A furriers? A furrier. I don't know, it's a new world for me, to be honest. OK. They've come in all shapes and sizes, and they've come from all sorts of sources. But primarily sheep? M more or less from the sheep direct, yes. The overcoat, a piece of clothing, the most external layer of any human being, something that normally we simply remove. Here, this becomes part of Akaki Akakievich's identity, his destiny, and eventually this attachment to the overcoat leads to his downfall. The Overcoat was the first piece of Russian prose that was genuinely popular, particularly because you can take it at face value as a pathetic story of a little man who's abused by everybody, has this moment of glory which is snatched from him, and he's avenged only posthumously. If you look at it like that, then it's the ancestor of virtually the whole of Russian fiction for the 19th century. You have little people who are abused, and posthumously avenged in Dostoevsky, in Turgenev, in Chekhov. Why do you think Gogol is less well-known in Russian I literature? suppose that the big hitters in Russian literature are big hitters partly because they tell people what to do when they finish reading the book. 
the Dostoevsky says, go to church and repent. Tolstoy says, give all your money to the poor and become a vegetarian. Uh, or even Chekhov, who's very modern, is like going to your GP who says, nothing we can do about it. You get old, you die, just live with it. With Gogol, there isn't a philosophy you can seize. Yeah. Uh, it's a, a dip into a half-crazed world. You can enjoy it, you can be puzzled by it, but it can't change your life. Yeah. It could distress you, possibly. It could even unbalance you. Akaki Akakievich had a peculiar knack as he walked along the street of arriving beneath a window just as all sorts of junk were being flung out of it. This explains why he always bore about on his hat scraps of melon rinds and other such rubbish. Akaki Akakievich is a very strange individual. He doesn't seem to have any interests in life. He doesn't pay attention to what's going on around him. He doesn't notice that occasionally a fly is floating in his cabbage soup. He has no family, no friends, no vices, in fact. He only wants to copy documents. He's one of this army of bureaucrats. He's a titular councillor. Yes, and that is about uh, as low, low as you can get. Very low down, yes. <laughs> He's unlike all previous tragic heroes. He never wants to go above his station until, of course, he wants a new coat. That's what destroys him. There exists in St. Petersburg a powerful foe of all who receive a salary of 400 rubles a year or, or thereabouts. This foe is none other than the northern cold, although it is said to be very healthy. You must know that Akaki Akakievich's coat was an object of ridicule to his colleagues. They even refused it the noble name of overcoat and called it a dressing gown. At the time, people took Gogol exclusively seriously as an indictment of how the poor were mistreated. And it's only later that they realise you're not in a normal reality. It's Faust and the devil. Faust requires something which he's not supposed to have, and he's prepared to go to the devil to get it and sell his soul for it. As well as being a kind of a mystical object, it also has a practical value. Oh, it's a difference between survival and death in a Russian winter. I'm glad I've got my overcoat. Yes, yes. Well, it doesn't look quite as expensive as Akaki Akakievich's, if it's that one there. <laughs> Sorry? It doesn't look as expensive as Akaki Akakievich's, that one there, but... Um, I mean, how expensive do you think it looks? Oh, I'd have to feel it there. That would be an intrusion. If Not that's, at all. If, if, a... that's, if that's real silk. <clears throat> um, can I ask you, a bit delicate, but... How much should one spend on a coat? Good question. Is it like, a, yeah. like an engagement ring? Well, it can be. You're paying for the material, you're paying for the guy's time, you're paying for him to come and measure you up, which I've always, for the last <sighs> three or four, I've had them, you know, take my measurements. And I don't want to make any secret of it. The last one I had, I paid £2,000 for. That's for everything, for the measuring? For oh, the yeah, well, for... there was no add-ons, that was it. Oh, he didn't fleece you for buttons? No, no. In some way, his talents are those of a con man, which mm. is a spiel yeah. in which you bewitch your audience. And um, Yeah, you do constantly feel yourself yeah. having the rug pulled yeah. from beneath you when you're reading yeah. him. He plays with words, he spins. Uh, he'll be today a very, very good stand-up comedian. Akaki Akakievich thought and thought, and at last decided he would have to cut down on his day-to-day spending, for a year at least. He would have to stop drinking tea in the evenings. Nikolai Gogol has been called the grandfather of alternative comedy. So I've come to see the father of alternative comedy, Alexei Sale. He's a big fan of Gogol, and also, I suppose, his son. Avoid taking his personal linen to the laundress as much All the details about Akaki Akakievich's poverty are exaggerated to serve as a metaphor for his spiritual poverty. As soon as he comes back home, he takes off all of his clothing so as not to spend money on laundry. All of this is comic, grotesque, and of course does not really have any realistic explanation. I have quite an intimate relationship with Gogol in a sense in that it was him in a way that got me into comedy. He spotted you. Yeah, he ran the comedy store in Donetsk. When I was about 14, our school decided to put on a production of The Government Inspector. And I was cast in the role of a Jewish merchant. Hmm. I mean, now it would be registered as a racist incident by Camden Council. Yeah. We give him a tray with stuff on it. And what I had to say was, please accept the tray with it. And so the way I did my line was, I said, please accept the tray with it. Hmm. And I got a tremendous laugh. 
the first time I'd ever got a laugh on stage. Wow. It was thanks to Nikolai Gogol. Because your background is, you have some Eastern European blood, don't you? Yeah. Do you think that that's important in Gogol, the sort of the Russianness of it? My parents were also in love with this idea of Russian suffering, of Russian sentimentality, of the Russian soul, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. We think we're very original, but if you are writing fiction now or doing stand-up comedy now, all those character types that you think you have nailed, you will see in Gogol. So if you do something about, you know, environmentalists or vegans or pompous political people, it's all there. And this is a classic in the overcoat. This is the downtrodden, lowly worker. Yeah. Just trying to get his overcoat. Um, What do you think about mine? I don't know, is is this what you young people call it? Vintage? Is it vintage? Yeah. Because it looks like something Dennis Waterman would on a date. That instinct to subvert what you're meant to be doing is a very, very common contemporary comedy thing. This guy is Johnny Sweet. He's basically a comedian and goggle lover and man. His whole approach to narrating it is like he can't be bothered. I really like when he introduces the tailor. He says, It is not necessary to say much about this tailor, but as it is a custom to have the character of each personage in a novel clearly defined... There's no help for it, so here's Petrovich the tailor. He's just so fed up that uh, there are certain things you have to do when you write <laughs> yeah, a book. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Petrovich was faithful to ancestral tradition, and when quarrelling with his wife, he called her a low female and a German. As we've mentioned his wife, it will be necessary to say a word or two about her. Uh, unfortunately, little is known of her beyond the fact that Petrovich has a wife undercutting the very act of narration, presenting something very poorly. That's what makes it a more truthful experience, I think, because by being honest and revealing how silly the whole construct is, you actually think, well, I can kind of go with you on this one. And then he criticised my coat. Of course. Mm. What do you mean, of course? Oh, nothing. It's fine. What's he on about? I don't know. He said it was... Awful. Well... I'm trying to search for the... She's not even my girlfriend. She's just an actress. She came to my flat to record these bits. When I was in the kitchen making tea, I clearly heard her say to the producer that she could never live somewhere like this. When I am wearing it, quite a few people like to take a photograph on their phone because they identify with the coat more than they identify with me. Mm, I think it's 50-50. Do you? Can I ask you what you think about my jacket? Well, I'm not a great one into leather jackets. I thought they were sort of teenage um, people who go to rock concerts and things like that I associate with leather jackets. Yours looks pretty well worn, actually. It must be a favourite one of yours because it's taken a a bit of a battering. Because I get quite a lot of criticism for this one Uh from um, my mother and um, a lot of experts on Gogol. I see, Okay. And what people do point out is there's some blood on the collar. Okay. well, I can't really enlighten you on that that's your jacket I've come to London's West End East End and I'm going to go and visit a tailor a man called Clive Fithian who's a master cutter because I'm starting to get a little concerned about the comments and uh, sly asides about my own overcoat Welcome to the April the 43rd 2000 I feel myself losing focus. I know it's one of those things where a documentary listener would probably say, what are you talking about? You seem very focused on the job in hand. But I can feel it. How can a man make a documentary about the overcoat if his own overcoat is being bad-mouthed and sneered at with each turn? I don't like it. I need to avoid it. I am indeed. I think I've got an appointment to see you. You have indeed. And so, Akaki Akakievich decides to go to the tailor Petrovich and asks him to mend his coat. What could 20 pounds do, do you think, to a coat like this? Realistically. Oh, God. Not a lot. I mean, we're full bespoke tailors. What I like uh, particularly in this is when he goes to the tailor yeah. and discusses how they're going to make the coat and what it's going to be made of. Uh, yeah. You realise a goggle could have worked in Savile Row. Uh, he knew an incredible amount about clothes. Anything you could touch and feel. Right, we're just going through. Oh, he's got... Oh, my This is God. a client's overcoat, yeah. Uh, the affair progressed more briskly than he had expected. 
his heart, generally so quiet, began to throb. This is a cashmere herringbone overcoat, oh which, which we've made for a client. Classic double-breasted. And now we look inside the lining. It's a beautiful pale blue. It's so soft. It is. It's pure cashmere. I think you need to measure me up. There's virtually no love interest ever in Gogol. Women either behave like sort of insects with too many pheromones or they're hideous old crones. But the word for the greatcoat in Russian is feminine. So what kind of choices can someone make? Obviously, you'd always have sleeves. I would. That's the love story. We're told he's in a state of ecstasy about it. He dreams about it. He walks on tiptoe for months so he can afford to acquire it, to marry it, in effect. So just tell me the price of this one that I'm currently uh, stroking. The price of that overcoat is £3,500. And then on the great wedding night, it's snatched from him. Yeah, I'll take it. I knew you would. That's my coat now, said one of the thieves in a thunderous voice, seizing him by the collar. Two men with moustache approach and one of them grabs the overcoat and takes away the beloved of Akaki Akakievich. He's completely devastated and he decides to go and speak to an important personage who could help him in this investigation. The 86th of Martoba, between day and night. I know I shouldn't finish the documentary with a trip to a tailor's. Also, I'm a bit muddled by what Alexei Sale was saying about the Russian soul, so I'm going to talk to a Russian soul expert by phone. On perceiving Akaki Akakievich's modest demeanour, the important personage turned abruptly to him and said, What do you want? in a brusque, hard voice, which he had practised in front of the mirror for a whole week before being promoted to his present rank. I think that Gogol has managed to show, as none other, what is wrong with Russia. Konstantin von Eggert, broadcaster and Russian soul expert. When you look at the Russian society today mm. and you see the struggles of, say, the Russian opposition, of people who are victims of unjust court sentences and find the officialdom solidly lined up against them, all this you can find in the overcoat 150 years ago. How important do you think it is to be Russian when reading it? Because I read it and I loved it, but at the same time I do kind of think there's something uniquely Russian about it that I don't completely understand. I think that to understand Gogol, it's enough to be born unfree. Many people in the West who were born free and whose fathers were born free and whose great-grandfathers were born free will probably find in Gogol a lot of absurdity, a lot of you know, surreal images and surreal situations. But all of the situations are pretty real to those who as I did, lived under the communist rule. And you were not allowed to have a car without the state's permission. You were not allowed to travel without the state's permission. The oil boiled down to the state controlling your life. Do you know who you're speaking to? Do you realize who's standing before you? Do you understand? I'm asking you, do you understand? Akaki Akakievich's senses failed him. He trembled in every limb, and if the porters had not run to support him, would have fallen to the floor. They carried him out, almost lifeless. But the important personage was quite intoxicated with the thought that his words could deprive a man of his senses. There is something completely totalitarian in this ability to present himself as a power while he's a nobody. <laughs> and I think in this respect, Gogol has looked forward to the totalitarian regimes in the 20th century in which appearances were more important than substance. One thing that you find, especially in the overcoat, is this constant vacuous quest for status. Mm -hmm. This small-time bureaucrat, Akaki Akakievich, only finds fulfillment in the overcoat because it's how you look, not what you are, that is important. That is something that is still very much relevant in Putin's Russia. And do you think that extends to overcoats? <laughs> to many people, this idea of having you know, the right phone, the right car, the right wife, the right job forms part and parcel of their lives, not only in Russia, in the West too. And I think that Russian young people now choose Gogol because they find him relevant, they find him funny, and they find that he speaks to them because he describes reality they are familiar with. And he doesn't mind sort of deconstructing his writing and telling people what he's doing. Sorry. Ricky, can I call you in 10 minutes, okay? Fine, thanks. 
You know, you'll be laughing. That's my tailor. No, is it? What does he want? You need to take the call. Well, you know, I need to pick up a suit. Um, coming back to what we're talking about. Oh, yeah, sorry. He doesn't mind sort of commentating on his own writing and explaining to the reader what he's about to do. Yes, absolutely. He plays with his ability to appear and disappear from the narrative very deftly. The next day, a violent fever showed itself. Thanks to the generous assistance of the St. Petersburg climate, the illness progressed more rapidly than could have been expected. And when the doctor arrived, he found that there was nothing to be done. Having described the passing of Akaki Akakievich, the narrator announces that that was not the end. But who could have imagined that this was not really the end of Akaki Akakievich? That he was destined to raise quite a commotion after death, as if in compensation for his utterly insignificant life. But so it happened, and our poor story unexpectedly gains a fantastic ending. The fantastic coder tells us about a ghost that appeared in St. Petersburg shortly after the death of Akaki Akakievich and attacked various people on the street taking their overcoats. The police was alerted and put out an order to detain the ghost, alive or dead. Madrid, 30th Februarius. I'm a writer these days, as well as a documentarianist. I also write poetry, comedy, texts, and flirtatious post-its to my cleaner. And I can see Gogol's influence in it. I try to tinker with reality. I try to tease, to cajole. And I comment and obsess with my own material. His tricks. The important personage was stopped by the ghost of Akaki Akakiewicz, and the ghost said, At last I've found you. It's your coat I'm after. We notice that he's very assertive, he gets his message across, and in fact, he finally manages to engage in the world. He became a more full-fledged personality after his death. Unlike Gogol, I find it more difficult to expertly pull things back into an all-too-crisp focus. The next contributor is crucial. I need an expert. I get asked that question three or four times a season. Where were you that day in the snow with the sheepskin coat on? Yeah. Wickham Wanderers, 1990. There was a freak snowstorm. John Motson, half man, half sheepskin. Football commentating national treasure. If anyone can explain the mystical link between a man and his overcoat, it's him. Um, And what do you think about Nikolai Gogol's The Overcoat? Well, it's a book I haven't read. But having been privileged to be part of this programme, I shall make absolutely sure that I go out and buy it. That's fantastic. Hello. Good afternoon. Is that Mr Key? Yes. Hi, it's Clive here at Alexander Boyd. Keep talking. I have your overcoat ready. It's all finished and ready in the shop, awaiting your body. That's brilliant. When shall I bring my body down? As soon as you can. Hopefully it will be everything you wish for. It was, it's difficult to say on what day precisely, but probably the most glorious one in Akaki Akakovich's life, when Petrovich, at last, brought home the overcoat. Day 34T, month, early February 349. Oh boy, it's absolutely gorgeous. I've blown my entire fee on this but it's actually quite an emotional experience emotional because it pains me to feel how happy Akaki was before his demise and also emotional because it's killing me that I won't have anything to show from making this documentary except of course I will I can't stop stroking my flanks the day when uh, Akakiewicz receives the code is the happiest day of his life. And in fact, one superior official even decides to throw a party to celebrate this event. That whole day was truly a most triumphant day for Akaki Akakiewicz. He returned home in the most happy frame of mind, took off his coat and hung it carefully on the wall, admiring afresh the cloth and the lining. Ta-da! What do you think? Like, what would a wife think of No, it? no, what do you think? As an actress, as, as Izzy, as you. It's amazing, I'd genuinely marry you. Really? No, I would. You look, how do I pronounce that? Mercurial. Mercurial. Thank you. And warm. Mm, well, don't add lib. Sorry. 
Why don't you leave it there? The documentary? Yeah. I'd love to. But I need to talk about what happens to him after he buys the coat. I don't... What? Won't that spoil it? It did for me. Well, just leave it. He ate his dinner with great relish, and after dinner he wrote nothing, but lay for a while on the bed until it got dark. Where are you going? I'm going to go show it off. Quite right. Ta-ra, then. Ta-ra. Then he put on his overcoat and stepped out into the street. Now, I want you to tell me the name of the book and who it's by, because I'm not up with literature like you are, obviously. Um, it's Nikolai Gogol. Gogol? G-O... Gogol. G-O-G-O-L. The book is called The Overcoat. The Overcoat. And it's a short story... Right. ...about a man who gets teased for his overcoat. I see. OK. And everyone in his office is constantly berating him. Oh, I've got it. OK, OK, right, OK. And he decides to save up... Yes, and buy a new overcoat. Oh, I've got the story. Right, OK. And okay. when he gets it, everyone really enjoys it. OK, OK. But then on his way home, he gets mugged and loses oh, the overcoat. bloody hell. Magic people for the people! Tim Key and Gogol's Overcoat was produced by Stephen Rajam for BBC Radio 4. It was the winner of the 2013 Prix Italia for Outstanding Originality, among many other awards. Take a page out of another book, maybe Emily Post, who has five rules for email communications. But any email is fine by us, as long as it's sent. Our address is resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. No rules apply. Of course, you can always tweet us or like us. You know the drill. Coming up after the break, Superman gets lost and the spirit of the great David Foster Wallace is found. Stay with us. Welcome back to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today, audio stories that popped out of the pages of great books, including great comic books. Al Letson is a storyteller and public radio host who is hugely, passionately into comics. And in his search for super stories, he found this Superman superfan. Granite City, Illinois. Just the name sounds like something from a Will Eisner comic book. And things in this city seem to have stopped right around the end of the golden age of comic books, the early 50s. You see, it's an old steel town that at one time was buzzing with life. But today, the signs, the city hall, and this place seems like a time capsule. And it's also the setting for a battle of good versus evil that centers around an unassuming guy in his late 40s. His name is Mike Meyer. He met us on a Sunday morning, fresh from church in a bow tie and a button-up shirt. Al. Hi, I'm Mike. This Hi. is Crypto and Dino. Hi, Crypto. Crypto, as in Crypto the Superdog. They're good dogs. Come on, Crypto. Mike lives in a little house at the end of a rundown street. When we walked in, 1950s television shows were on TV. And before we could even get in the door, he pointed to the mantelpiece. There's my four favorites right there in case you wanted to know. What's that? Superman's my first, Batman, Popeye, Uh and Herman Munster. So this is the thing you need to know about Mike. Mike loves Superman. Loves Superman. Probably more than anything else in the world. Comic books, movies, TV spinoffs. If it's Superman, he loves it, and he probably knows everything about it. So is this the Superman room? Still a work in progress. Wow, this is pretty amazing. What you can't see, radio listener, is that we just walked into a room where every single surface is covered with Superman stuff. Signed photographs, figures, dolls, posters, a huge shelf of comic books and plastic sleeves. There's a twin bed with Superman blankets and pillows. He spent decades building this up, and all the milestones in his life are Superman-related. I'd say, say, uh, my biggest involvement was in 1978 on in the December 15th 
when that, that Christopher Reeve Superman came out. It was unbelievable. When my father was alive, he took me. It was one of the greatest nights of my life. Yeah. Highlight of my teenage life, you might say. It was the highlight of his teenage life because it's kind of all there was. He grew up in a bad neighborhood in East St. Louis and stayed inside reading comic books after school and on the weekends. A lot of times, you know, as a kid growing up, I don't think people accepted me the way they should have. And uh, why, do you, why do you think that is? I don't know. I was a kid growing up in East St. Louis and in school I used to be attacked a lot. People used to look down on me in high school. I mean, I was pretty much alienated by most of my high school friends. Mike lives alone here with his dogs and works part-time at McDonald's. He gets by with the help of a disability check because of different mental health conditions. He seems made for the world of comic books, but navigating the outside world can be a challenge for him, and any extra money goes towards his Superman collection. Well, it's pretty much completed. I ran out of shelves. The reason I have this collection is because I'm having a hard time trying to find a woman of the opposite sex, and it's very hard to try to find someone you like who's interested in you. And so this is basically what I do to try to keep my mind off of it. Yeah. This is your fortress of solitude, sort of, huh? Well, the bigger one's in the basement. The bigger one? I thought I was looking at the Superman room, but I was wrong. I'm going to turn on the light. Okay. Holy moly. You've pretty much got almost every figure of Superman ever created. Yeah, I can't believe I said holy moly either. Wall-to-wall Superman. Hundreds and hundreds of items. Does Superman feel like a member of the family almost? It kind of feels like a friend you come home to every day. This this helps. This is like, like when I come home, I not only have my dogs, but I got this to look at. And if I get into a really miserable state, then I come and look at this. The collection is Mike's comfort. The thing that makes him feel safe. Or it was until last fall when Mike's very own Lex Luthor showed up in Granite City. This man was very, very tricky. He, he, he posed as a friend, but he was really a, an enemy. The man's name was Gary Armbruster. Mike actually knew him from around town. They both used to hang out at Hardy's back in the 90s, but he hadn't seen him in about 10 years. When they ran into each other in a local comic shop, Gary asked Mike for his phone number and said he wanted to come over to Mike's house for a visit. He calls me up on the phone. I told him, listen, it's late. He just would not accept no for an answer. So I let him come in. See, I was just trying to be kind because at this point, he didn't do anything to me yet. When Gary got to Mike's house, he zeroed in on the Superman stuff right away. He was asking what I thought my whole collection was worth. He was asking me what my favorite things were, how long I've been doing it. The next time Gary showed up, he brought his girlfriend, brought her inside, and said he had to be in the driveway working on his car. So he's telling me to keep his girlfriend entertained. So we're watching the first episode of the Kirk Allen Superman serial. He says, now you explain that to her. You sit there and explain that to her in that tone of voice. Mike did as he was told. You know, he thought it was weird, but... You know, Gary was working on his car and his girlfriend was bored. The next morning, he noticed something was off. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go into the Superman room, see if there's anything missing in there. And lo and behold, this whole wall was vacant. This wall behind us. Nothing but figures on it at the time. And every Superman comic I had, he stole it. To say that Mike was devastated would be an understatement. He called the police, then he called his Superman collector friend Bill Smith, who lives in St. Louis, and he's known Mike for years. This is the first time that I really had seen Mike angry. He was hurt, but he was also really angry. And um, you know, people around Mike had to kind of kind of calm him down and put him in, you know, Mike, it's not going to help if you just, like, hate this person and get angry. He said, no, that's not what Superman would do. Superman would not, you know, would not be angry. He said, but I can't. I can't help it. You know, it's, it, it's, I trusted him and he did this. Mike has always believed in justice and good, but there was no Superman coming to rescue him. And he was sure his collection was gone forever. You were really, really upset. Yeah. I mean, you, you were to the point that you were like, you said, I'm just going to give up on Superman. Is yeah, what you said. I was, I was going to quit collecting altogether yeah. when this happened. I was just going to quit. I'd never heard him so discouraged. I said, well, Mike, you know, maybe we can get this stuff back. Maybe we can figure out something, some way to do it. In his regular life, 
Bill is an ex-newspaper reporter for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. He called every reporter he knew trying to get Mike's story out there. He figured that if enough people heard about it, there would be no way for Arm Brewster to unload such a huge collection without anyone noticing. He got someone to come out to Mike's house and interview him. No one had any idea how far that little article would go. You know, it, it just kind of took off. I mean, pretty soon there were like, you know, five stories about it, ten stories, you know, twenty stories, and, you know, it became this, you know, crazy little thing with a life of its own. I can't remember exactly what the headline was, but it was a very clever headline from the St. Louis Post. And it was basically, the idea was uh, a super fan, Superman fan could really use some help from Superman. And then it told the story. That's Keith Howard, a nurse, comic book nerd, and Superman impersonator from Belleville, Illinois, not far from Granite City. So you should know that Keith looks a lot like George Reeves, the iconic Superman from the 50s. He's a part of a group called Super Friends of Metropolis, and they started corresponding about what happened on Facebook. Well, that kind of started a bunch of you know, comments. Oh, how horrible. Oh, my gosh. We, you know, we should do something to help. And, and uh, so I chimed in and said, if you guys are interested in making donations and maybe taking a collection for him, I'll make sure that he gets them. And if you want me to represent our group as Superman, I'll show up in costume if you like. In Granite City, Mike was waiting anxiously for news. The next night, Bill Smith calls me up on the phone and says, Mike, you're all over the Internet. I don't have a computer. I go to the computer at the library, and I couldn't believe all the stuff that was going on. Suddenly, people started putting posting things saying, we'd like to send something to Mike. Where can we send it? Bill and Keith Howard both gave out their addresses, saying that anyone who wanted to help Mike could send things to them. Gary Armbruster was still at large, and Mike's shelves sat empty. Bill and Keith waited, hoping that help would soon arrive, which is where we'll pick up in a minute on State of the Reunion. You're listening to State of the Reunion, and before the break, we'd met Mike Meyer, whose giant Superman collection had been stolen by a real-life villain. His friends had spread the word to the cyber world of Superman fans with the hope that they might replace some of Mike's collection. Well, there were a few packages at first. We thought it would die off pretty quickly. That's Kathy, wife of Bill Smith, one of Mike's friends. And then I remember distinctly one day coming home, and there had to be close to 50 packages piled up outside our front door to the point where I had to physically move the packages even to get in in my own front door. It's like they didn't let up. And the day something came from China, I thought, oh my gosh. Who were all these people, and why did they feel so moved to send stuff to Mike? We set up a voicemail number where people could call and tell us why. Hi, my name is Christina W. I am from Cottonwood, California. I live in Falls Church, Virginia. I'm in the U.S. Air Force. I was deployed to Afghanistan. They sent Mike not just any old stuff, but their favorite Superman items. I gave away about 90% of my Superman comic collection. A Superman sweatshirt, a knit cap action figure, a lunchbox. Mike asked for pictures of Superman. I, that's the first time I've drawn in years. And the reasons they did it kind of blew me away. You might be aware of like my voice going in and out um, from my having trouble holding onto the phone. I have cerebral palsy. I'm 53 and I was uh, born with it. To me, um, you know, Superman and many uh, characters just are the embodiment of making people with afflictions of some sort, uh, feel uh, a bit better. I mean, in the spirit of the character, I mean, Superman has always been, you know, like a beacon of hope. I wanted to give this man who I'd never met before, you know, a sense of the same hope. By the time everything arrived, Keith and Bill had hundreds and hundreds of pounds of packages to deliver. Keith Howard decided to make a surprise visit to Mike at the McDonald's where he worked, then bring him back to the house where the piles of boxes would be waiting. He put on his Superman costume, George Reeves, the 1950s Superman, Mike's favorite. What did Mike say when he saw George Reeves Superman at, at, at his door? That was, that was one of the most chilling moments. Uh, I mean, it kind of gives me goosebumps thinking about it because I'll never forget it. He shook my hand, he closed his eyes, and he said, I just want to hold on to you because 
this is as close as I'll ever be to meeting the real George Reeves. Mike was overwhelmed. Going through all the boxes took months. In the meantime, the police actually did catch Gary Armbruster, the man who stole the collection, and Mike got most of it back. But after all those years of collecting, he started to realize that the objects themselves were not what really mattered. The gifts are really nice, but the most important thing is that people were thinking of me. That meant more than anything. Mike ended up with so many extra Superman items that he and Keith Howard went down to a children's hospital in St. Louis and donated a bunch of it to the kids there. And this experience has changed Mike's life. He feels like he's a part of something. And for Bill and Keith, helping Mike was a chance to make their hero real. More real than he'd ever seemed on a comic book page or in their imaginations. That brings something out of all of us, so that the, the deep inner part that wants to be good, to right a wrong, to fight an injustice for a total stranger, that's the spirit you're talking about. That's Superman. That's what Superman would do. And we all have gotten to take part in that. Superman was told by Al Letson, produced by Laura Starcheski, and edited by Taki Telenitas for State of the Reunion. Al is now the host of the public radio investigative series, Reveal. You want to meet David Foster Wallace? When you read something, it's not just a light. You go, my God, that's me. You know, I've lived like that. I've felt like that. I'm not alone in the world. There's this part that's that's, um, that makes you feel full. Our last story this hour starts small on a train platform and ends big in a meta tribute to the writer David Foster Wallace. And in between, it is densely packed with words and thoughts and many an homage to the late great writer. So perk up your ears and get ready for a fast-paced, funny, frenetic fantasy. Even the title is meta. Here is... And a warning, this piece contains strong language. So like this guy, while waiting for the train and listening to a podcast about a guy whose appendix burst. And while he was in hospital, a trainee nurse pulled out his breathing tube unsupervised and destroyed his esophagus, and he was deprived of oxygen for 10 minutes and suffered severe brain damage. And his girlfriend, who later married him, takes care of him, and after years of determination and hard work, he can at least smile again, sort of, and make a bit of a noise. And they got him this device he can use to indicate if he's hungry or thirsty or cold, and they have a blog about their story, and they got a special van to get his wheelchair around in, and they want to inspire other people facing hardship to believe in themselves and know that if they work hard, they can overcome anything. The guy listening to that story and waiting for the train on his way home from work feels a pang of envy, of actual envy for either the brain-damaged guy or his girlfriend. Not envy for having brain damage or having your partner incur brain damage, but for that they evidently don't have jobs. Presumably some kind of litigious settlement or insurance payout from the hospital for the negligence resulting in serious harm would support them fairly well, considering they can afford a special van and communication device and their own apartment with special accoutrements and accommodations for his differently abled state and condition. And not only they don't have jobs, but they have a story. An uplifting story that they go around telling and it gets them on the radio and all kinds of people write to them to say thank you and God bless you and what an inspiration. And their lives aren't just day after day of mundane, meaningless labour and toil and drudgery and routine. And the esophagus guy had been in Iraq. It was very dangerous and full of improvised explosive devices. But he made it home in one piece and had his whole life ahead of him. But then the appendix thing happened and the esophagus thing and the brain damage thing. And even after that, his father died in a car accident and his mother committed suicide and his brother went to prison for 20 years. And seriously, how much worse could things get for a person? But nevertheless, the guy waiting for the train has this fleeting thought that in some way, Maybe the esophagus guy's life is somehow actually preferable to his own. But then he feels really guilty and like a total asshole for thinking that. Like it's one of those sort of sick, guilty things that pass through your head sometimes. And really, you're just being a totally self-pitying fuckhead because you have a job and a house and a wife and a baby and a great life that 99.9% of the world wishes they had. And yet, you are envying someone who has had so many terrible things happen to him. It's not even funny. 
just because you're tired and your job kind of sucks. It's a pretty fucked up thing to think. And the guy knows it's fucked up, even as he thinks it. But it should also be mentioned here that the guy, the one waiting for the train and listening to the podcast, is also possessed of a proclivity to write, as in of a literary bent. I won't use the term aspiring writer to spare you the cliché, but also because he really has no aspirations. Writing is just his want, a thing he does. So at the same time as he's having this fucked up feeling of envy for the esophagus guy and subsequent guilt over having the fucked up feeling of envy, he's also thinking about how maybe there could be a story in there somewhere and trying to think how you could make that work. It couldn't just be a story about a guy waiting for the train, listening to a podcast and feeling envy and then guilt. That would just be prosaic and jejun. It would need something more. It would need to be repackaged and retooled in some way to give it more layers, more depth, to make it more literary, so to speak. It should be explained here, however, that a few years previously, the guy, the one waiting for the train, had come to feel like everything with regard to writing had been done before, and anything he tried was just rehashing the same old shit, and he got kind of bored with and sick of fiction, both writing and reading it, and as a result, his inclination to write had ebbed in a big way. But then he discovered the writer, David Foster Wallace. And in a short space of time, had read everything David Foster Wallace had written. Now, you may already know this, but although often referred to as a postmodern writer, and certainly descended from that literary lineage and heavily influenced by it, he, David Foster Wallace himself, was actually very much of the opinion that postmodernism, while groundbreaking and radical in its heyday, had, by the time he, David Foster Wallace, had come along, well and truly run its course. That the deployment of techniques such as deconstruction of traditional narrative structure and intertextuality and metafiction and irony, which techniques had made postmodernist literature so revolutionary in the 60s, had now become so commonplace that postmodernism had essentially become exactly the mainstream norm that it initially sought to depose. In essence, David Foster Wallace was calling for a new literary movement, one that evolved beyond the cynicism and hipness and ennui of postmodernism that was willing to take risks and be heartfelt and naive and wide-eyed and sentimental. And yet he knew that the clock could not be turned back. Postmodernism had left its mark on the cultural landscape, and whatever new form literature took would have to concede that. And therein lay the crux of David Foster Wallace's conundrum. Is it possible to be cynical and naive at the same time? But then also, David Foster Wallace has this distinctive voice in his writing, this kind of persona that draws you in, makes you feel like you really know him, like he is speaking intimately and familiarly directly to you, the reader. Which actually was another big thing of his, that the voice in writing was very important, because writing's main job was to make the reader feel, if only for a short time, a bit less alone in the world. Which says a lot about David Foster Wallace, maybe. But anyway, the point here is that his writing voice is really engaging and funny and witty and likeable, and to an aspiring writer, really hard not to totally copy, no matter how hard he or she might try not to. It's like reading David Foster Wallace ruins you forever as a writer, because it becomes impossible to not always forever after sound like a person trying hard to write like David Foster Wallace, only not, obviously, anywhere near as well. I don't mean just in terms of the congenial voice, but also his stylistic quirks, E for G, the deployment of long, dense blocks of text without paragraph breaks, the explaterative run-on sentences, the pleroma of obscure vocabulary words, the use of abbreviations and acronyms, the intus libri inclusion of Latin phrases, the juxtaposition of colloquial idioms with Byzantine phraseology, and, of course, the extensive use of footnotes. Footnote one. Sometimes rambling on for pages even to the point of taking over from the main text for a while and becoming entirely separate stories, creating the sense of listening to one of those cool sorts of friends who always gets tangled up in their thoughts and sidetracked by tangents for a while before finally, eventually, coming back to their initial conversational thread. So in a way, and this is sort of a twisted irony, David Foster Wallace, who wanted to help move fiction out of the quagmire of postmodern two cleverness and set it free, kind of fucked fiction writing up forever because everything anybody writes now stands in the shadow of his work. Or maybe that's just for the one guy, the one waiting for the train and listening to the podcast about the esophagus guy and then feeling envy and then feeling guilt and then thinking there could be a story in that and wondering how you'd make it work. And then thinking about how David Foster Wallace would have thought of a way 
because David Foster Wallace had a particular talent for exactly that. He has many stories in which we, the reader, are privy to the thoughts of a character that is somewhat repulsive and pondering some inner thought or desire that we can all relate to a bit. Just a bit, though. And in his stories, David Foster Wallace makes it kind of extreme, which is cool because you think, yeah, I do know that thought or feeling, but I'm nowhere near as fucked up as this guy. But anyway, the point is that the man waiting for the train, as he's thinking how would David Foster Wallace use that scenario to make a good story, or whatever you want to call it, the word story seems hardly apt since the stuff he does sort of breaks a lot of narrative conventions, but to call them pieces sounds really pretentious. He realises that whatever he does is going to end up sounding just like some guy being a David Foster Wallace wannabe. Ripping off David Foster Wallace's unique and distinctive style without the brilliance and cleverness and keen wit and lovable humour and staggering vocabulary. And then the man thought, maybe the piece could work if he made it ragingly self-aware of it being a total rip-off slash pain slash homage to David Foster Wallace. Like twisting the whole thing around and being like, yeah, I know I'm trying to be David Foster Wallace. Ha ha, that's the whole point. Look at me trying to ironically be just like David Foster Wallace. Which he thought might be something David Foster Wallace might try if he wasn't famous and was in the position the man was currently in. Which would mean David Foster Wallace wasn't famous, but someone else was famous for the exact same thing David Foster Wallace is actually famous for in the real world. And he wasn't sure whether David Foster Wallace would approve of his efforts with regard to trying to use irony and self-awareness doubling back on itself in this way to solve the conundrum, or if David Foster Wallace would think it was a terrible idea and so unbelievably and preposterously postmodern and metafictiony, and exactly the sort of thing he, David Foster Wallace, had been trying to get the hell away from and would hate. But he, the man waiting for the train, thought it might be good to at least try it out anyway and maybe even send it to David Foster Wallace to see what he, David Foster Wallace, thought, except he couldn't because David Foster Wallace was dead. And actually, really, that was the saddest part of the whole story. Poyuminen was written by John Steiner and read by Adam Norris. Louis Mitchell was the sound engineer. Poyuminen first aired on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's Radio Tonic from RN's Creative Audio Unit. For those of you, like me, who had no idea what the word poyuminen meant, let me enlighten you. It means a specific type of metafiction in which the story is about the process of creation sometimes the creation of the story itself. Now I know there really is a word for everything. Hi, this is Katie. I can't pick up, but leave me a message and I'll call you back. Hey, Mingle, I just wanted to call you to find out when you're coming to Chicago, what you're going to be doing at Filmless, what you're excited to be seeing and doing when you're here. Call me back and let me know. Bye. Hi, it's Gwen. I'll call you back as soon as I can. Thanks. Gwenny, it's Mingle. Yeah, sorry we've been missing each other, but I'm so excited to see you at Filmless. I'm going to be doing a live 99% Invisible story, but it's never been on our show before. It's brand new. Um, It's going to be great, I think. I'm really excited about it. Oh, and I can't wait to go to the awards ceremony. It's like our our Oscars. And um, I don't know what I'm going to wear. Anyway, can't wait to see you in Chicago. Miss you so much. Okay, see you soon. Bye. And we hope to see you at the 2015 Third Coast Filmless Festival as well. It's coming up soon, October 23rd through the 25th at Chi Arts High School in Humboldt Park. Join the reunion. All of the fun, none of the clicks. Tickets are going fast, so get yours today. For more information, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. 
Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. Support for ReSound also comes from Frontera Grill, Topo Labampo, and Shoco, serving handmade tortillas from organic Mexican heirloom corn. You can find more information, recipes, and inspiration at rickbayless.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.